1: Welcome to the heart of innovation, 60 minutes that can save life and limb with new breakthrough ideas and innovation, changing the healthcare landscape brought to you by patient advocacy group, the way in partnership with Abbott. Here are your hosts for the heart of innovation, Emmy award-winning journalist and founder of the way to my heart, Kim McNicholas and interventional cardiologist and founder of the save my piggies health education series. Dr. John Phillips.
2: Hi, everyone, and welcome to the show. Dr. John Phillips is off on a mission somewhere, saving some piggies, and he'll be joining us again next week. But in the meantime, I am live over at the El Paso, Texas, conference called Cliff, and it is a limb salvage conference, and I'm here with Dr. Jay Matthews, an interventional cardiologist from Florida, and we have Dr. Efren... Um, Rivera. He is a pain specialist right here in El Paso, Texas. And I brought them together because I, I wanted to share a very personal story and I wanted to get their perspectives to help me help my dad. He fell in August of last year, broke his hip and broke his arm, ended up in a wheelchair for about two months, was doing his physical therapy every single day. He's you know former captain in the military. You give him an order to work out, he's going to do every single exercise and then some. On top of that, we were able to get him on an anticoagulant as well, because he is a vascular patient. He is a heart disease patient. And it was really important that since he was going to be sedentary for a long period of time, that we stepped up his anticoagulation therapy to prevent blood clots fast forward he started walking again got up to about four miles a day and he was doing this every morning at five o'clock in the morning and one morning he woke up and suddenly he started feeling heaviness in his legs i said you need to go get a venous ultrasound got the venous ultrasound it was clear i was thinking blood clots at that point they said it was clear they sent him to an orthopedic surgeon, said, you need to have your back checked, got an MRI. Of course, he's 82 years old. He's going to have back issues. Plus, he was sedentary for a long period of time. Maybe that had some sort of an impact on some of the nerve sciatica or or something. Right. I was confused, though, because. I would have thought that would have been more right when he got up out of the the chair and started walking again. But it was literally three months later or so that he woke up that one morning, heaviness in his legs. Then that progressed to suddenly getting hip left um, pain in his hips. And the orthopedic surgeon said, let's start a series of cortisone shots. Cortisone shot. Two months later, another one. That didn't work. And. Two months later, another one, three cortisone shots later, and there's still no improvement. And in fact, his symptoms are increasing to the point where he also started having shortness of breath. I at that point said, something's not right. I need to get to his cardiologist. And I told them, I want a 256 slice CT scan. I want to check the lungs. I want to check the heart. I was even thinking maybe just with the shortness of breath, maybe something from being sedentary for a while, his right coronary um, was blocked up again, but I'm not a cardiologist. So, you know, my, my advocacy side though, was, was stepping up to try and exhaust all efforts to find what was causing all of these different symptoms. And the cardiologist ended up ultimately finding the fact that he had two blood clots distally. Nothing could be done about them; They determined they were chronic, however, they determined that through through that scan and the next step was to get a venous ultrasound. The venous ultrasound, the first one uh, ended up showing that he had non occlusive chronic clot bilaterally, meaning in both common femoral veins. No problem. You know, we'll send you the Eloquis, which is a blood thinner, anticoagulant. And, you know, whenever you get it, just start to take it. No problem. I said, well, what about his elective procedure to have stem cells in his lower back, which was two days later? And the nurse practitioner said, oh, no problem. Shouldn't be a problem. It's, it's chronic. So um, chronic clotting. So it's not going to be a problem to have this procedure my little radar went up. So I called the orthopedic surgeon. I said, so what do you think about this? She said, no, that would be negligent on my part until we figure out the source of these clots, make sure things are stable. You're on the aloquist for a certain amount of time. Three months is standard. I'm not doing any sort of elective procedure at this point. And so we decided to put off the elective procedure, decided to get a second opinion from another cardiologist who said, you need to come in and have a, Another ultrasound. I, a specialist in a clinic where the technician only does these types of ultrasounds on the legs all day long. Lo and behold, acute occlusive clot in both common femoral veins, and the doctor came in and said. I need you to start, here's some eloquist. here's a sample, you're starting right now, I'm getting you in tomorrow, and we're getting a filter placed in the, what's the vein?
3: Infravena cava.
2: Infravena cava, for some reason, it just does not roll off the tip of my tongue very easily. So we got a filter, it looks like, if you've ever played badminton, it looks like a birdie that's placed in this in this vein to protect um, the heart and the lungs in case there are additional clots while the eloquist takes effect placed that in there, he went on a loading dose of Eloquis for seven days, 20 milligrams a day, and he started feeling as though he could walk two miles. The heaviness seemed to disappear. There was no more acute pain in his left hip at night, and he was like, this is amazing. And so at the moment he ended up reducing after the seven days, down to 10 milligrams a day, a few days later, the heaviness started returning. Then a couple of days later, the pain in left hip that woke him up at night returned. We went back to the cardiologist now, what, two weeks after starting the seloquis, and his venous ultrasounds now are clear. Common femorals are veins are clear. No more clot at this point. The cardiologist said, so, you know, it has to be a back issue. Must be coincidental. It's your back. And you need to go back to your orthopedic specialist and, you know, get your injections or whatever you need, because what you have going on is not vascular. We've done a CT angiogram, and there's no malignancy that might be causing these clots. There's, there's no compression. You are good to go. Now, I'm scared because my mom passed away a year and a half ago because doctors brushed off her pain as being spinal, her lower lumbar. And she ended up with tachycardia, um, erratic blood pressure, shortness of breath. And they said, well, that's all due to the pain caused by your back. Cardiologist, vascular surgeon, orthopedic surgeon, all of the above, all came to the same conclusion. So we went up to Lake Tahoe, South Lake Tahoe, and went on vacation. And I walked in on my mom on her knees and she says, Kimi, I don't know what happened. And she died in my arms. She had an aneurysm that dissected. Gone. And so you can imagine my fear now with my dad when we're getting ready to go on a, a holiday vacation. And I'm scared that he's going to die in my arms. It's a real fear. I don't know what to do.
4: First thing you, the first thing you need to do is you need to go to a cardiologist to do an echocardiogram of his heart to make sure he's not in introfibrillation or, head, you know, and see what his heart chambers look like. You, you have to have uh, a good uh, chest x-ray to make sure he doesn't, he's not having an ascending or descending thoracic aneurysm or abdominal aneurysm, you know, because that's what your mom died of, a ruptured abdominal aortic aneurysm. I mean, I mean, he needs to be worked up really good.
2: Yeah,
4: I agree. What he about
2: you? You need to see the heart doctor for sure. <laughs> you know. Yes, heart doctor. What do you think?
3: Yeah, I mean, um, there could be a lot of things going on. Uh, uh, you know, again, I'm, I'm not your dad's doctor, so I don't know all the details of yeah. of what's going on in his care. But you know, when 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 they do these CT scans, uh, fortunately, the CT scan shows a lot of different things. It also looks at the aorta as well, too. So we know there's no aneurysm and. Uh, and they were looking for compression on a static image so you can still get dynamic compression so I, I, you know, the CT venogram is a good starting point but it's not the end all be all. Sometimes you do have to go in there and just take a look to make sure you know, with intravascular ultrasound that there isn't really any compression going on and then, you know, if you've exhausted all possibilities at that point you know, uh, then you start looking at other things that could be causing back pain issues. But the, the fact of the matter is you know, he has unprovoked venous thromboembolism. Uh, so this is a high-risk situation. This is not a 3 month blood thinner situation. This could be a lifelong blood-thinner situation. So, you know, he's got chronic clots that have gone to the lungs. He's had uh, uh, um, already uh, previous non-occlusive clots at a high level, common femoral and potentially above, uh, because the ultrasound doesn't show what's going on in the belly. Uh, uh, you know, be, they're kind of limited in terms of how far they can image uh, unless they know to look for it and then he had acute on chronic thrombosis and so again this is all unprovoked and uh, in that kind of situation you want to f- try to figure out why is that happening okay.
2: yes we do and coming up we're going to explore that in just a moment so stay with us right here on the heart of innovation
5: Welcome back to The Heart of Innovation.
1: For more on today's topic, go to theheartofinnovation.org. That's theheartofinnovation.org. Once again, here's Emmy Award-winning journalist Kim McNicholas and interventional cardiologist Dr. John Phillips.
2: Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the show. Dr. John Phillips is off on, well, maybe we should say he's off on sabbatical, but I don't know. I have two amazing physicians that are here with us right now. We have an interventional cardiologist, Dr. Jane Matthews, and we have a pain specialist, Dr. Efren Rivera. We are here live in El Paso, Texas at the Cliff conference. It's a limb salvage conference. Doctors from across this region are here learning new advanced limb salvage techniques for patients who have a disease called peripheral artery disease, um, which is blocked arteries mainly in the legs. Dr. Jay Matthews was having a presentation at this conference about DVTs or deep vein thrombosis, as well as pulmonary embolisms. And so I thought it was appropriate that maybe I could talk about my dad's story and we can use my dad's story to key off of to educate everyone on you know, what is a DVT? What causes a DVT? Um, What causes a pulmonary embolism? And maybe some new treatment options that are out there for it. But before the break, you were talking about my dad, my dad's situation, and really the importance of getting to the heart of why are these clots occurring?
3: Yeah. So, you know, when we look at clots, clots are actually a lot more common than we think. Sometimes folks are running around with these things and they're asymptomatic and we don't even know Uh, But sometimes they can lead to really significant consequences, especially when you end up with a proximal clot, let's say up in the thigh or even higher up in the belly. And that can go on to, you know, 50% of those can go on to end up with a pulmonary embolism or a blood clot in the lungs. Some of those clots in the lungs can be Mm life-threatening. So it's not something that we want to trivialize. And, you know, when we talk about blood clots uh, in the venous circulation, we want to know are they provoked or are they unprovoked? Provoked means something happened to set it off you had trauma, you've got a drug or something that you're taking that causes you to be hypercoagulable or more prone to blood clots, uh, like hormone replacement therapy, for for example, can do that. Maybe you're a long-term smoker, so you have more blood viscosity. You could have an underlying cancer uh, that could be setting off blood clots. So there's many different conditions that can set you up for blood clots. But then there's also this um, situation that's called unprovoked.
2: That's what scares me. Should so the unprovoked yeah and and,
3: and, and the, the if you had if you don't know what's going on then it's uh the responsibility of the treating physician to figure out well what what set this off and uh sometimes there is a cause like that you've uh, discover like i said there's a uh there's a compression of the vein by a mass or or, or another structure like an artery and that caused the blood clot to happen uh, there was something that in the history that you missed that you pick up, but sometimes you have these unprovoked situations, and s- some of these folks may have clotting disorders that we can't discover. You know, there's many clotting disorders that we don't even know yet, and so, uh, uh, and or there's some other condition that 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 created this. In that situation, a lot of treating physicians recommend lifelong blood thinners because we don't know what could set this off again. Uh, There are a number of very scary conditions that can lead to more blood clots, life-threatening blood clots, and that's the reason why it's really important to do follow-up, meet up with a vascular specialist, a hematologist potentially, uh, you know, different uh, uh, treating physicians to potentially figure out what could the etiology be for the thrombotic event.
2: And that was one of the things that the cardiologist did immediately, which was referred my dad to a hematologist, an anticoagulation specialist, and they performed quite a few genetic tests. Would you mind going through some of the most common genetic testing that if someone has the reoccurring blood clots, what should they be asking for?
3: Well, you know, it, it's called a hypercoagulable workup, and, and, the, and that workup continues to to broaden uh you know, but the, the, when they when they run these types of tests, especially for these unprovoked uh, thrombotic events, uh, then you know they'll look for things like factor five lyden. Some of these conditions are heritable. Uh, you know, prothrombin mutations, protein C and deficiency, antithrombin three deficiency. Uh, there's also uh, the antiphospholipid syndrome, and there's three components of that too. You know, you hear about things like lupus anticoagulant and whatnot too. Uh, and there, there's several other components there as well too. And uh, and depending on what type of condition there is, would also dictate what type of blood thinners you may need to use because certain blood thinners work in certain situations, and uh, uh, it's important to know what that clotting disorder is if there is
2: one. That's a really good point because, you know, there are you were mentioning actually during one of the breaks about um, a certain disorder that requires Coumadin in particular.
3: Yeah, we we were uh, we were talking with Dr. Rivera about uh, one of his patients that had uh, antiphospholipid syndrome and antiphospholipid syndrome is associated with both arterial and venous blood clots. It can be a catastrophic uh, condition. Sometimes uh some, some folks, younger women may end up with miscarriages. Uh some people end up with strokes. In addition to blood uh, blood clots of the legs and also of the lungs, and so this arterial and venous clotting disorder, it's, it's pretty profound. But it does not seem that the newer blood thinners like uh, Eliquis and Xarelto, uh, these drugs don't seem to work well for the the so called triple positive antiphospholipid syndrome. So in those kind of situations, most hematologists still recommend using Coumadin or Warfarin. You know, the old it's an old drug, but it still has a role for some of these cases, and we can also uh, – we have to do very close monitoring because, uh, as mentioned previously, it's a very tight therapeutic window. So uh, sometimes we have to do things like home monitoring where we'll have actually uh, testing kits that you, you'll do from your home, and you can actually monitor your own uh, 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 level of blood thinning, uh, You, you know, close monitoring, frequent testing, so that we can make sure that the blood uh, is appropriately thin. What gets challenging is when people need to have procedures done. As Dr. Rivera does a lot of, uh, you know, interventional pain procedures. This happens to me as well too, because I get, I get clearances that people ask to, to get taken off their blood thinners for various procedures. And we have to then decide what is the safety of doing these types of procedures? What's the risk to the patients? There are some bridging type things that we can do, but there are some patients that really can never be taken off a of blood thinner safely.
2: Yeah, that's a really interesting question. You know, As a pain specialist, that's probably something that you, you must consider and probably have the conversation with the patient's cardiologist to determine, hey, can this patient in fact afford to be off a blood thinner for a certain amount of time if they're going to go in from some sort of spinal procedure? Uh,
4: that is correct. I've had uh, several patients that are any they're either on Coumadin long term for that antiphospholipid syndrome, and of course they'll never get procedures because they can never get off the Coumadin. That's one. Uh, and then I've had other patients that are on Eliquis, Serralto, and those types of uh, anticoagulants. And I have the conversation with them. I go, "Okay, look, so I'm going to do a procedure." But I need for you to be off your medication, uh, either three days or five days, depending on you know what they recommend. And but the but the question I have is, can you be off that medication for those days? And they go, I don't know. Okay, then if you don't know, that's fine. We're going to ask your cardiologist or whoever or your hematologist or whoever puts you on the medication. And so that's what I do. I write a I, I write a uh, a little question and say, when you see your cardiologist next week, give him this and have him answer the question. Can the patient be off his anticoagulants for three to five days? And what do you recommend before I do a percutaneous procedure or a more deep uh, uh, spinal procedure? And usually the cardiologist will, will either uh, fax me an answer or he'll call me or he'll just, or the patient comes with that, with, the, uh, with the answer.
2: But and coming I, so, up right, so either
4: way, we we get it, we get it figured out.
2: And coming up right here on the Heart of Innovation, we're going to have more with Dr. Afrin Rivera and Dr. Jay Matthews. So stay with us. Life and limb could depend on it.
1: Welcome back to the Heart of Innovation. For more on today's topic, go to theheartofinnovation.org. That's theheartofinnovation.org. Once again, here's Emmy Award-winning journalist, Kim McNicholas, and interventional cardiologist, Dr. John Phillips.
2: Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the show. We are live here in El Paso, Texas at the Cliff conference. It's a limb salvage conference where doctors from across, actually, the U.S. are here and gathering to talk about um, advances in limb salvage care for specifically patients who have peripheral artery disease, those blocked arteries in the legs. One of the speakers is Dr. Jay Matthews. He's an interventional cardiologist. He his presentation was all about DVTs and pulmonary embolism, so all about blood clots. And I thought it was a good opportunity to use my story with my dad and the struggles that I have been having to get him diagnosed and treated for blood clots, both in his legs and his veins, as well as in his lungs. Also here, we have Dr. Efren Rivera. He's a pain management specialist because he is you know, someone who's going to be helping guide me as well um, with my dad, because now that he's had treatment for the blood clots, the doctors are now saying, okay, well, it might be time to have his back checked again as well because maybe some of his symptoms are stemming from that. But before the break, we were talking about some of the procedures. If my dad or any other person ends up with a procedure on their back or any other procedure, even knee knee replacement, if they're on anticoagulants or another type of blood thinner, maybe even antiplatelet therapy, what happens when they have to be taken off these particular blood thinners, especially anticoagulants, because we've had situations in our network where a patient was taken off the anticoagulant therapy for multiple days. They ended up clotting, trashed their foot, and ended up with amputation. And we don't want to see that happen to anyone else. One of the options I'm curious about, and it was mentioned before this break, was bridging. Can you talk about bridging, who it's right for, what it is, and um you know, how a patient can go ahead talking to their doctor about it.
3: Yeah, So, you know, when it comes to bridging therapy, it's really designed for people that can't be taken off of their antithrombotics for any length of time uh, or really, you know, a long length of time. So, you know, uh, you mentioned antiplatelets versus antithrombotics, antiplatelets, oftentimes we're going to be using those with Uh, uh, patients that have uh, heart stents or other vascular stents. uh, And depending on the age of the stent or whatnot to some of these patients can come off of antiplatelets safely for a short duration before having to go on that. We don't typically bridge for that unless they have fresh stents. And there are new IV drugs for use in the hospital where we can do bridging. That's not really something that can be done as an outpatient. Now, if you have a thrombotic situation – And so, again, it comes down to what is the condition? What is the risk of clotting if you were to take that patient off of blood thinners for three to seven days? So if there's a high risk of rethrombosis, those are patients that are going to require some type of bridging. And usually bridging is done with some type of injectable medication. The most common one that's used is a drug called anoxaparin or Lovinox. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's usually given twice a day. Uh, uh milligram per kilogram you know, we we give it it's a cartridge it, it, it's an it's an injector that you administer at home subcutaneously there's also other drugs like a Rickster that work as well but lovinox is the most common drug used and usually what happens is uh if you're on something like warfarin or coumadin and you were to stop it the moment that your INR becomes subtherapeutic within 24 to 48 hours they start expecting you to give that give yourself that injection Now, there are other drugs like uh, uh, Xerolto or uh, Eloquis, where after three days, the the drug is pretty much out of your system. And at that point, so, you know, you become very subtherapeutic quickly. They may have you do 24 to 48 hours of bridging. Uh, but right up to the procedure. Then they have you stop those drugs on the day of the procedure because it's out of your system within 12 hours with the lovodox injections. And once you get the procedure done, if it's safe to do so, you may go back on the Xeralta or the Eloquist that evening. And usually that's okay. That's a short amount of time that you're off. And those drugs are relatively quickly back in your system. Unlike warfarin, which can take days to get back in your system, then you're going to have to bridge again with Lovinox for a few days, maybe five to seven days until your INR or how how thin your blood is, is therapeutic. So uh, it's different depending on the drug that you're using, and it's also different based on the condition that you have.
2: And so for, for those who aren't doctors like me, I, I'm curious why is it that Lovinox doesn't have the same impact during a procedure, I, I assume that the reason you're off these, these additional blood thinners is because of the risk of bleeding during a procedure. Why is that not the case with the use of Lovenox? Well, Lovenox, it, it
3: is highly effective. And if you were to do a procedure on Lovenox, uh, like something like a spine procedure, you would bleed from all over the place. Um, it's like the IV heparin, except it's got an even more even therapeutic window. So the, the thing about Lovidox, though, is if you stop taking it, uh, uh, 12 hours later, it's it's out of your system. So you can do a procedure. And yeah, it so, it's, uh, so then it becomes very easy to do that procedure. And that's why it's one of the more preferred ways of doing bridging at home because it's not an IV infusion. It's a subcutaneous injection.
2: Right. So you're saying it's just it's, it's out of the system, yeah. but it's not out of your system for too long right to where you're going to go back and you're going to just start right. clotting right away right
3: so we you know it is a little bit of we we're, we're taking a chance with these types of things the reality is people who have blood uh, clotting disorders need to have procedures done sometimes and so it's all about trying to reduce that risk and it's that conversation that doctors will have with the patients to say well how high is this risk are you willing to take any risk mm-hmm. some patients want to take no risk because they had a very bad experience maybe they had a stroke or they had another complication that happened. They don't want to go on any bridging. They don't want to ever have a procedure done. And maybe that's okay for them. But then there's other folks that need to get things done. And uh, they are willing to take some risk in order to be able to get those uh, procedures that they need.
2: Thank you so much. Coming up right here on the Heart of Innovation, we'll have more with Dr. Matthews and Dr. Rivera. So stay with us. Hi, I'm Kim McNicholas with this week's Medical Notepad brought to you by Abbott. This week, Let's talk about selecting a doctor only because you like and trust them. Liking and trusting a doctor simply because they have the title, great bedside manner, some positive reviews, possibly work in a big-name facility, or even that your physician referred you to their golf buddy. Well, that's not enough to determine if they have life and limb-saving potential with your presentation of peripheral artery disease. Different doctors have different approaches, different tools, and different techniques. They also have different facility policies, which may include time limits for specific procedures, versus others who may have greater freedom to spend more time on complex cases. Some doctors prefer conservative approaches. Some prefer minimally invasive procedures, while others perform only surgical solutions such as bypass endarterectomy and amputation, while some do it all. Some doctors may choose to treat sooner rather than later. Others, later rather than sooner. There are some who will amputate, without attempting to restore blood flow clear to the toes, some who won't even treat below the knee, some who won't even perform vascular assessments prior to an amputation at all. Some may even have access to lifestyle modification programs, such as supervised exercise therapy, heart disease reversal diet programs, smoking cessation programs, and more. So it's really important that you take a step back before deciding on a particular doctor to treat your circulation issues related to diabetes and or peripheral artery disease to ask the right questions. To get customized questions based on your presentation of disease, call the Way to My Heart's Leg Saver Hotline at 415-320-7138. That's 415 415- Three two zero seven one three eight. With this week's medical notepad, I'm Kim McNicholas, CEO of The Way to My Heart. Remember, the advice and views offered in this series are for informational and educational purposes only. Make sure you always check with your own healthcare team before acting on any advice offered here. For more information, go to thewaytomyheart.org.
1: Welcome back to The Heart of Innovation. For more on today's topic, go to theheartofinnovation.org. That's theheartofinnovation.org. Once again, here's Emmy Award-winning journalist Kim McNicholas and interventional cardiologist Dr. John Phillips.
2: Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the show. We are live in El Paso, Texas at the Cliff Conference. It's a limb salvage conference. And one of the speakers is Dr. Jay Matthews, interventional an cardiologist. And we also have here Dr. Efren Rivera. He's a pain specialist. Uh, we do have a live studio audience, and we do have a question for coming in from Douglas. Douglas, uh, what is your question for the doctors?
5: Yeah, the question is, we hear a lot about clotting, and we understand some people clot faster than others. Some people can clot in a in a week, and some people say it takes six months or a year. And what's the importance of exercise and stop smoking in, in that to prevent clotting also? So, uh, it, it,
3: so I'm going to answer your first question, which is, why is it that some people clot more so than others? It's just because we're all different, right? So uh, it, we're genetically different. We metabolize drugs differently. Our clotting factors work differently, too. So there are some people that are rapid clotters while other people are slow clotters. So some people bleed more than others, right? And uh, uh, that's also the reason why drugs work differently in folks, too. You know, The way their liver processes things, the way they, their liver produces proteins that... Uh, uh, help with the clotting cascade, and uh, these things are all important when you ask these questions of who's going to bleed and who's not. And sometimes it's hard to tell uh, when you're when you meet somebody for the first time what kind of person they are and whether or not they're going to bleed or not or have a clotting problem or not.
2: And uh, we have a question coming in from Marsha. Marsha, go ahead and uh, ask your question of the doctor. You mentioned a few minutes ago
5: that um, it depended on how fresh a stent was. And I'm wondering why that matters. And what is a fresh stent versus is that a year old? Is it, you know, you got it inserted yesterday and where leg coronary?
3: Yeah, I mean, uh, it, so all stents are made out of some type of metal. Uh, in the coronaries, it's oftentimes uh, cobalt chromium or platinum chromium alloys. In the legs, oftentimes, they're made of something called nickel titanium or nitinol. And, um, uh, and there are also some stainless steel stents out there as well, too, that they use in the legs as well. All of these are foreign bodies. And the body uh, sees it, tries to clot it off because it's not supposed to be there. And on top of that, some of these drugs are medicated and they release a medication that prevents your body's natural healing process from covering over the stent because the hope is eventually that the stent becomes incorporated into the wall of the artery or the vein, depending on where you're putting it. And uh, the hope is that it gets a lining of tissue. And at that point, your body doesn't even know it's there anymore, right? It's keeping the vessel open. It's part of the wall. It's not going to clot off. anymore. So in the, I'll start with the heart. In the heart, typically, Uh, We used to say that you had to be on uh, antiplatelets like Plavix or Clopidogrel, uh, uh, Effient or Brillant, any of those drugs, for at least 12 months. Uh, But then they've been able to drop that number down to about six months. And then now actually some of the stents uh, have indications for as little as one month uh, where it can be safe to potentially come off of those antiplatelets. Now, we don't routinely recommend that, but let's say you need a procedure done. Uh, you know, if you have uh, an Onyx type stent or a Zion stent, uh, and some of the other stents too, also have, have discovered that their risk of clotting of those freshly placed stents is really lowest after that first month. And then oh, you might get a procedure done, and then you go back on the the plavix for maybe another six months. But well, we're not necessarily always recommending going out to twelve months with what they what they call dual antiplatelet therapy a lot of times we're also dropping the aspirin now too, after about a month as well too because it doesn't seem to add a whole lot. So many folks are just on uh drugs like clopidogrel or uh, uh you know uh, or, or any of the other uh, ticagrelor for example uh for just going out for uh, uh 6 months without uh, additional aspirin. So uh in the legs it's a little bit different. Uh even some of the medicated stents they didn't necessarily recommend pushing out the antiplatelets for as long uh, now, many of us still believe that we should do that uh, because the, the legs and the heart are very different, uh, but the vessel sizes are different. The flow is different. There's a, depending on where you're at, it makes a difference. So you'll see a lot more variation in terms of what the recommendations are in the lower extremities than there are, say, for example, the heart, where it's very well studied in the heart.
5: One, one follow-up question, if I may. Um, is that why it's imperative for us as patients? You know how they give you your stent card? Well, I have five of them now, and I only know where a few of them are. But all of that is on my chart. Is that why it's important for us to know that? If I say I had an ER visit, a surgery.
3: Yeah, I mean uh, it's uh, it's important for us to know. Well, how old is that stent? If it's if it's over six to twelve months old, then. You know we're we're okay. The oh. risk, if you if you tell me you've got a fresh then in there it was put a less than a month ago, it's going to give us pause before we're going to try to stop any of your drugs to do any type of procedures. We have to tell you what is your risk of having a complication because we certainly don't want you to have a heart attack because somebody took you off your blood thinner or your antiplatelet drug uh, and then you have a complication goring uh, another big operation that can increase your risk of death.
2: Thank you. Yeah, that's, I mean, I, I even wonder right now, you know, what are the options for my dad? Because he has to be on Eloquist for now months and who knows, possibly even longer. We do have a an appointment with the anticoagulant specialist, the hematologist, which is important for anyone who is on anticoagulation therapy to make sure that they do check in with their hematologist or their cardiologist um, on a regular basis. Um, but if, for example, with my dad, he is in debilitating pain, the heaviness has returned to his legs. He's got the pain at night in his, in his leg. How is it that he can get yet maybe another procedure? What would be the options for him going forward to help his back so that he isn't struggling in the meantime?
4: Okay, so that's a very good question. I mean, I don't know the specifics of your dad, so I'll just generalize yes. uh, as what I see in my my in my, my patient's in my clinic. Okay, so uh, if your dad, you had mentioned that your dad had uh, two lumbar epidural steroid injections mm-hmm. and they did not provide any relief for any long period of time, then that means that they're either not doing the correct injections or the patient has enough lumbar spine deterioration and damage that they're not going to help. And so, How do you determine that? You look at the X-ray, you look at the MRI, and the radiologist uh, will say, patient has uh, severe or moderate lumbar canal, central canal stenosis. Whenever I see lumbar central canal stenosis in a lumbar uh, MRI, I tell the patient, look, I can provide an epidural steroid injection, but the chances are of it working long-term are gonna be not so good, they will be minimal. But we can do that if you'd like. And sometimes they say, uh, doctor, uh, let's give it a shot. I'd, I'd rather try to get some pain relief at least a few days or a week than, than not. I go, okay, so we try. And they wind up getting little pain relief. And I go, well, part of the problem is that you have, if you're 83 years old and you already have lumbar central canal stenosis at several levels, And then you have that's being contributed by lumbar facet arthropathy and lumbar neuroforaminal stenosis and lumbar deteriorating bulging disc and lumbar degenerative disc disease. That's a lot. That's a lot. So uh, what am I going to do with you? Well, I can do one of two things. First of all, I'm not going to do any more epidural steroid injections because they're not going to help you. We already know that. One didn't give you any relief. And I'm not going to do another one or another one or a third one. I'm not going there. All right. So then these are our options. I can optimize your medications. Okay. Gabapentin, pregabalin, pain medication, muscle relaxants, uh, anti-inflammatories, if you're not on any anticoagulants. Okay. We can do that and see how that works. If it doesn't really provide you any relief, then guess what? We'll send you to the orthopedic spine specialist. We'll send you to the neurosurgeon and see what he recommends. And what I find is they come back and they say, patient, we're not going to operate on this patient, but you might offer him a spinal cord stimulator for lumbar radiating pain or lumbar pain that's running down his legs. That's related to that. Okay. so I'm usually the last guy that sees the patient, Mm -hmm. you know, in terms of. Pain in their legs, heaviness in their legs. Most likely, in your dad's case, the heaviness in the legs, it's probably because of lumbar spinal canal spinosis, impinging on the nerves, and that kind of thing. So, uh, he probably needs neurosurgical consultation, orthopedic spine specialist consultation, or he might need a spinal cord stimulator that may
2: help him. Coming up right here on The Heart of Innovation, we'll have closing thoughts from both Dr. Afrin Rivera and Dr. Jay Matthews. So you don't want to miss that. Stay with us.
1: Welcome back to The Heart of Innovation. For more on today's topic, go to theheartofinnovation.org. That's theheartofinnovation.org. Once again, here's Emmy Award-winning journalist Kim McNicholas and interventional cardiologist Dr. John Phillips.
2: Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the show. This is the final segments. We just have a few minutes with some final thoughts. Before the break, I was talking to Dr. Efren Rivera. He was giving some thoughts about my, my dad with his continued heavy legs to get a consult with some orthopedic specialists, uh, neurospecialists, et cetera. Um, I'm still wondering, Dr. Matthews, if you mentioned earlier on in the show that it still might be worth getting a venogram because even though he had the CT angiogram that showed he was clear, even though he had the um, venous ultrasound showed the clots seemed to have dissipated, it is possibly coincidental, or maybe not, that his heavy legs seemed to dissipate once he was on the loading dose of Eliquis And then, ironically, several days after stopping and moving down to the 10 milligrams, his heavy legs were back within days. Then a few days later, the pain back in his hips. I don't know as a cardiologist if this is any sort of sign that there's possibly still something else going on with his DVTs.
3: Well, like we said before, too, he had unprovoked uh, DVT, and it always is we pause and i always want to try to rule out every possibility and the reality is he has a filter in place right now too that somebody's going to need to remove you don't want to leave that filter in long term it to lead to thrombotic complications they can migrate they can go places you're not supposed to go and so ideally within one to two months time of implantation or sooner that filter should come out now that he is on blood therapy so if they're going to go in to go ahead and pull that filter out it's very easy to go ahead and just take a quick peek to make sure there is no sign of compression Uh, uh, either within the distal IBC, in the bottom of the IBC, or within the iliac veins. Uh, And that's that's just a simple ultrasound procedure. They can do it literally while they're taking that filter out. So I think it's important to make sure you rule out all the possibilities before you write it off and say, hey, this is just run-of-the-mill back pain.
2: So, with an ultrasound, they can do this.
3: Yes, an intravascular. Ultrasound.
2: Oh, so you mean the Ivis? Yeah, okay,
3: Ivis. Yeah, intravascular ultrasound. It can be done while that because they have to go inside the infravena cava to remove the filter, uh, and then you know they can just take a wire down and take the catheter down and also image at the same time.
2: Thank you so much. I really appreciate you both being here um, and, and joining us, and you know, really helping me to advocate for my dad. I think advocacy is, is just really so important. And I think there's so much that us as as patients and as caregivers can do to even help inspire doctors. You know, to they don't always think of everything, right?
3: Yeah, I mean, I, I go to a lot of meetings and um, I'm involved obviously in a number of national societies and consensus committees and whatnot. To I'm always learning about new possibilities, new scenarios, and there's so much that is unknown about this space. Uh, there are definitely opportunities to continue to advance uh, our knowledge and also think about new possibilities and other possibilities.
2: Right. And if you did have something that was, um, you know, the blood clots, if, if they hadn't have dissipated, actually, there are, are some new um, new technologies that are out there that can suck out this clot, whether it's in the 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 vein or even in the lungs.
3: That's right. Um, and, you know, we're involved with a number of new technologies, uh, Several are in trial right now, too. I'm actually the national PI of a couple of them. And uh, it's uh, it's it's an exciting time because it's offering a lot more options than were previously available to patients in the past.
2: Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Dr. Jay Matthews, interventional cardiologist in Southern Florida. Uh, one of the things
4: that we didn't mention was physical therapy. I'm not a physical therapist, but I uh, always send my patients to physical therapy as another a modality to try to get him moving and stuff like that. So I think physical therapy can probably help some of these patients that are bedridden or they don't walk around very much. And I think that's very important.
3: Yeah. A lot of these patients have chronic theostasis, venous insufficiency, and in therapy is very important to help mobilize fluid and help prevent rethrombosis as well.
2: So don't be afraid to ask for physical therapy if you're in that situation. Thank you so much, Dr. Jay Matthews and Dr. Efren Rivera. We really appreciate you being here. And thanks, everyone. I hope you have a great weekend. Happy
4: holidays. Happy holidays.
1: You've been listening to The Heart of Innovation with Emmy Award-winning journalist Kim McNicholas and interventional cardiologist Dr. John Phillips. Our mission is to help patients live a better quality of life through comprehensive education, real-time support, and high-touch advocacy in partnership with TheWayToMyHeart.org and Abbott. Our purpose is to reduce the 1.5 million heart attacks and strokes and nearly 200,000 amputations annually. For more information regarding topics you've heard discussed on today's program, go to TheHeartOfInnovation.org. That's TheHeartOfInnovation.org.